All right. Uh, several months ago, I made a pact with myself and anybody who was here over the summer that I would start every sermon with the gospel. Um, and I believe that that's important because we have to we have to start any kind of understanding of the scripture with an understanding of the most important most important part of scripture. So the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ, um, was sent to earth. To live among us and to die for our sins. Um, He took all of our sins upon him on the cross um, and suffered for us so that we could be counted righteous, um, even though we are the sinners. Um, So that's the basis this morning. Um, All you have to do for salvation is accept that through faith. That is grace. Grace is something that you receive that you haven't earned, you don't deserve. And uh, that's the basis of everything we're talking about this morning. So if you have any questions about that, uh, please ask one of the leaders. This is the third week of our study into the attributes of God. Last week, uh, KT looked at the triune God and uh, God as spirit. I hope we've all started to understand as we're uh, just getting into this that God is really, really hard to understand. Uh, His attributes are way out there, and sometimes uh, we're never going to really fully get it. This week, uh, just to add to that confusion, and uh, just to add to the worship of how awesome and huge God is, we are going to be talking about God, the uncreated source of life, God and his self-sufficiency, and God's wonderful love. Studying uh, has been interesting. Bradley and I have discovered just once again uh, how huge God is, and to be very honest, we barely understand what we're preaching this morning. Um, so what we wanted was to leave it open for if anyone has any questions, if uh, you have any thoughts, if you want to add something to what we're talking about, raise your hand or interrupt. Um, this is going to be open. If you don't get it, just ask away. And it's better that you fi- figure it out now um, than just figure that you're the only one who doesn't get it, because probably you're not. Um, to be honest, we'll try our best, but a lot of this we don't get either. So, uh, like I said, feel free to raise your hand or interrupt, um, unless, only stipulation, unless you're disagreeing with me, in which case, keep your mouth shut, Uh, remember, I am the voice of God. So, God, the uncreated source of life, simply stated, God created Everything. I actually asked a good friend of mine um, from back home in the deep south uh, to give me some input. Just I actually asked him, say something smart about God's creation to help me out. And he said, the smartest thing I can say is God created everything. Which is true. Uh, according to the Bible, God created, in Genesis 1-1 we read, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. This is the very first word of the Holy Word of God. And the foundation, therefore, of everything we believe, every moral standard that we hold to, um, every facet of our faith is built upon this one verse as the bottom block in our foundation. God created everything. It is my personal belief that the only way, the only way we can honestly trust God as our Savior, as our Master of our lives, um, the only way that we can accept This is if we accept the two very important and very big truths. That one, God is eternal. 
And two, God created us and everything else in existence. Because if we can't um, ascertain that God is the fountain of all life, then how can we trust him to provide us with everlasting life? So this is key, guys, absolute key. God created everything. Uh, opinions on how God created everything, this abounds, especially right now in our modern age. Uh, I personally um, agree with the time-tested, scripture-approved, old-school, it's called ex nihilo, which is Latin for out of nothing. Um, this is the classical theism view from first century. And I'll explain it. Uh, a good definition for this, and this is from Burkhoff, for those of you who care. It is defined as that free act of God whereby he, according to his sovereign will and for his own glory and the beginning, brought forth the whole visible and invisible world without the use of pre-existent material and thus gave it an existence distinct from his own and yet always dependent on him. Simple version of that, before God created the universe, material and immaterial, there was nothing. No matter, no light, no energy, no dimension, no time. There was nothing. God brought literally everything into existence. Um, all the microscopic little cells in your body um, that do the most amazing little things. The sun... The energy in the sun that allows it to burn at 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. All these things God created, from the simplest to the most extravagant. God created all of those. Um, Hebrews 11.3 actually touches on this a little bit. It says, By faith we understand that the worlds uh, were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible meaning that God's creation was not made out of pre-existent material, but out of nothing. This isn't just some great, awesome truth to think about. Uh, I think it's a lot of fun to consider how big God is in that sort of way, but that's not all it is. Um, this is, like I said, key to understanding God and faith in Him. If God, for instance, did not create down to the last detail, if God, even one particle He didn't create, even one particle God didn't create, we would have to either assume that some other creator did or that God did not create at all. So we have to be under the assumption, the understanding, the knowledge that God created everything, absolutely everything. Nothing was done by accident. This is considered foolish by the world, guys. Um, the world thinks that having the opinion that God willed all matter into existence is about the same as believing the world is flat. Uh, <laughs> I looked into uh, <laughs> some of these uh, opposing views, though. The most popular is that everything in the universe was once condensed into a massive energy, follow me here, massive energy that then expanded in an explosive explosion of energy, and from this energy, matter is formed. Uh, I, I found a great quote about this, um, especially I actually typed into Google, where did matter come from, or where did the universe come from, something like that, and I got this great little quote from a scientific website. <laughs> As to where everything came from, there is no conclusive opinion. One idea was that the universe was created from vacuum. This is because according to quantum theory, the apparently quiescent vacuum is not really empty at all, for example, it is possible for an electron and a positron, a matter-antimatter pair, 
to materialize from the vacuum, exist for a brief flash of time, and then disappear into nothingness. This is, a, this is the best part. Such a vacuum fluctuations cannot be observed directly as they typically last for only 10 to the negative 20 hundredths, or I'm sorry, 21st seconds, and the separation between the electron and positrons is typically no larger to, than 10 to the negative 10th centimeter. However, through indirect measurements, physicists are convinced that these fluctuations are real. So, the origin of mass in the universe and the, uni uh, and the universe itself is quite speculative. Basically, uh, I know there's a lot of big words and they're trying to sound really fancy there. Essentially, what they're saying is that <laughs> they're telling us that you guys are really old-fashioned, you guys are really stupid, outdated, and closed-minded, and uneducated, because you think that God created everything out of nothing. But, what, but we know what really happened. A massive energy that accidentally came from nothing accidentally exploded and might have accidentally created life. Brilliant. Brilliant. So we're stupid because we think God created out of nothing, but they're smart because they think nothing created out of nothing. Anyways, um, the world is calling us closed-minded. Um, that's hard for us to hear, and in personal relationships, sometimes we care a little too much about that. They say we're closed-minded. I say we are logical. I say we are intelligent. And I say we are faithful to truth and knowledge because we believe God created everything. Firstly, God created everything that is material, as I've already uh, touched on. Simply stated, God created all of this. And this is a great place for the sermon, by the way. God created all of this. Every matter, every living thing, every resource, every element in nature, God made all of this. And he did so with design and an eternal plan. We are not made on a whim or on an accident. Secondly, God created everything that is immaterial or metaphysical. And that's the more difficult one. Uh, God created all the things that we cannot see, we cannot touch, we cannot smell. Uh, we have already said that he created energy, for instance. But he also invented things like, uh, like time, for instance. And that's a very difficult matter. But God created time, light, he also invented and created our spirits, our minds, our emotions, um, things that we, we can't necessarily perceive with our senses. And all of these things, they really make up who we are. Um, all those things that really connect us to God, God made those. And the beautiful thing is God made those eternal. Our spirits are eternal, and God made those. And we can't even begin, science cannot even begin to explain the soul, the mind, who we really are. We've been talking a lot about creation, uh, the difficulties in that. But one of the great questions next is, well, if everything's created, who created God? Uh, the obvious answer, no one. And that is because God is causeless. He is the only causeless entity. Since God is the cause of everything, but God, I'm sorry, God is the cause of everything but has no cause. And I love this quote, so bear with me, it's, it's, it's great. The existence of the world implies the existence of a God. All of this implies the existence of a God. And moreover, it implies the existence of a God whose existence does not imply the existence of the world. In other words, by looking at the world around us, we can see God's creation. We can see God's existence proven from the world around us. Because God has unending effect on creation. 
But if one was, to, was able to look at God alone, if you could just look at God and all his glory, you would see no proof for the existence of the world because the world has no working in God. The world has no effect on who or what God is as opposed to common beliefs. God is eternal and timeless. In Psalms 92, Moses says, Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Since God created everything, including time, as I keep saying, it's the obvious conclusion that he's not subject to it. And it should be stated, and stated fervently, that God is subject to no power outside of himself. He is subject to no one and nothing but himself. And this should be the true definition of eternality. Uh, we like to think of, et- of being eternal from our point of view. I'm going to live forever, which means from now until forever, I'm alive. Eternality for God is everything that he is at this moment, who he is and what he is, he always has been forever and always will be forever. God has no beginning. God is not only too everlasting, but he's from everlasting. Since God has no beginning, he has no cause. We are taught that everything in the universe must have a cause, right? Uh, It's basic physics, cause and effect. But we're also told that, according to physics, matter cannot be destroyed or created. But, as we've already seen, God did create matter. So God, like we already said, subject to no power. God is not subject to physics. God is not subject to what man thinks is science. When it comes to God, rules don't apply. At least physics don't apply. The reason that there is no higher power or being than God is because God has no creator. So who created God? No one. No one created God. Before creation, there was only God. There was no one else since God had no creator. He is at the top of the food chain. And I love this. Uh, This means that he gets to decide what is right and wrong. Because there is no one higher power than him, he says what is right and wrong, he says what is sin and what is good. And actually, the basic definition of good is what God says is good. The basic definition of sin is rebellion against God's standards. Um, The world doesn't like this, and sometimes I don't like this. It sounds kind of arrogant of God to say, well, whatever I says goes. But the reality is that whatever God says really does go. Because he's God. This brings up a very important point about our salvation. The reason we can follow God, the reason is because he has no cause, he has no creator, and he created everything. These principles are the building blocks of our faith. The only way you can truly believe in a single word of scripture is if you believe the first words of scripture. And the only way that you can believe those or any of the other ones, especially about salvation and eternal life, is if we believe and know, absolutely know as a fact, that God is truly the only uncreated, causeless being and the true source of all life. All of these amazing truths should lead us to one act alone, and that is worship. Just worship. God is so big, uh, it just reminds us how dependent on Him we truly are, how much we need Him. We need Him for every facet of our being. Um, 
Even just sitting out here breathing air, God is sustaining that right now. But it also reminds us, the one that's a little harder, is that he absolutely does not need us. Excuse me. God is completely self-sufficient from us. And that leads us to our next attribute of God, the self-sufficient Lord. God is completely self-dependent. He needs, he needs no one outside of himself. Acts 17.25 reads, Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Excuse me. God is, as we already said, the uncreated source of life. Therefore, what could he possibly need outside of himself? He created all these things that we need, so what could he possibly need? God depends on no one outside of himself for his happiness or his well-being. And God probably doesn't sweat either. That's a positive. Psalm 50, 10 through 12. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine and all it contains. God is pleased by our worship. Uh, and he is pleased by our obedience. But it is not as if God needs these things from us. Um, in Israel, they sacrificed, pleasing God through it. But God did not need them as if he was hungry, as if he needed uh, the meat that was burning before his altar. Many people would say that God does need us, and even that he created us because he needed companionship, as if he was lonely. But even before creation, God existed, triune God, as we talked about last week, three persons and one essence, Perfect fellowship, perfect companionship in one essence. God does not need our fellowship. God would have been perfectly happy, prepare, prepare to be stung. God would have been perfectly happy and fine had he never created us at all. Or even if he had just destroyed us after he sinned, God would have been fine. But the wonderful truth is that he chose to create and sustain us for a glorious purpose, which we will touch on in a moment. God depends on no one outside of himself to define his essence or his being. No one but himself defines who God is. God defines his own essence and attributes. It does not matter what we or anyone else in the entire world thinks about God or who he is. <clears throat> he is what he is according to his scripture alone, based purely on his choice. If not a single person in the entire universe believed in God, that would not affect who he is or what he is. God needs no followers to exist. Uh, some modern scholars would say that God uh, has basically evolved from our consciousness and is completely dependent on who believes in him. That is just junk. God is not dependent on us. We're dependent on him. And because of this, and I love this, and this is one of the reasons the world doesn't like to realize how dependent we are on him and that he created us. Because of these things, um, God defines morality, reality, truth, knowledge. God defines all these things. God is reality. This is all just fleeting moments. This is all going to burn. But God is eternal reality. God's standards of right and wrong have nothing to do with human ideas about it. Humanity has a great way of making up their own morals based on kind of how they want to live. hundred years ago, uh, if someone had sex before marriage, for instance, 
you would be shamed. Your family would be shamed. You would never be able to find a good husband or wife. That's it for you. Right now, in our society, it is the norm, the accepted norm, to live together for years, even have children together before actually being married. Years before actually being married, which is amazing. I know, I know personally, uh, I work with someone who was with her boyfriend for four years. They lived together and then broke up. Four years living together, having relations that should be marriage alone. That's, that's no moral base at all. God is not like this. His standards are unchanging. They do not change on the whims of society. They're unmoving, they're dependent on God alone, and they are eternal in their basis. God's standards also lack in nothing, for like we keep saying, they're fully sufficient in God. When we fully consider how mighty God is and how dependent we are on Him, it's a really humbling prospect. This doctrine should reduce us to our proper size. This should humble us down to our proper place before God. God doesn't need us. He doesn't need our help. He doesn't need us to defend Him. He doesn't need our service. When we give Him anything, we give Him only what is His own. Although God does seek out worship, He can exist without it, and He did for ages. How does that statement make you feel? Because it makes me feel like God's a big bully. Uh, Like I'm worth more than that. I, I am owed more than that because I'm a human being. My life has meaning. I am owed for the simple fact that I have life to be respected more than that. And that is a bunch of bull hockey, to use a southern term. <laughs> but if we can come to grips with the fact that God doesn't need us, that we are basically completely useless to him for all utilities and functions. We can start to realize how tiny we are, how awesome and huge God is. And this should also remind us how much we depend on him for every breath in our lungs, every beating of our heart that is sustained every moment by God. We need God. We rely on God for everything in our lives. He consistently provides, but he also asks for us to give to him in his service. Um, anytime we give anything to God, we're actually giving it back to Him. How weird is that? <laughs> so when we're struggling about that extra five bucks to throw into the offering, just remember, honestly, remember, it's already God's. When you're struggling on whether you should loan out your car to that other student because you think they might wreck it, it's God's car. It's not yours. And as a, I don't care how nice your car is. I don't care how brand new it is. It's not your car. It's God's car. Unless your parents say otherwise. Honor your parents. (laughs) God wants us to give to him even though it is already his. Just like he wants us to pray to him even though he's omniscient. Which I've never uh, been able to make sense of. These are really confusing commands, but basically it's not our place as pottery to question the potter. God commands us to give to his service, to give of ourselves, and to pray to him for our needs. Even though he already knows all these things and everything already belongs to him, we're commanded to do it, and that's all that needs to be said. Let's move on to asking the most obvious and most difficult question to the fact that God does not need us. Since God could have been perfectly happy and content without us around, 
Why did he even bother to create us? The answer is that God created us to worship him and to glorify him. It is not that he needed to be worshipped or that he needed companions. It's that he chose to act in such a way that would bring himself the most glory. Also, here's a whopper, God created us because he loves us. A little confusing. We run into the problem of time here, but remember, God is not subjected to time. God has loved us since before time was created, before. He chose us and chose to love us before time was created. Thus, he created us because he loved us, but also loves us because he chose to create us. A little confusing. The point is that he is too big for us to fully comprehend, but that he loves us and he created us for his glory, even though he didn't need to. He chooses to love us. There's a quote, and I didn't write it down, so excuse me if I butcher it. I believe from the material that we're studying for this by McDonald. Um, he explains that God chose for his delight and contentment for all eternity to be uh, intertwined with us, even though he didn't need to. He could have been happy and perfectly content without us, but he chose for our salvation and for our sins and for our goodness to be intertwined with his contentment and his pleasure and his delight. So when I sin, I bring discontentment and unhappiness to God. When I do good, I bring contentment to God. Even though it doesn't have to be that way, God chooses for it to be that way because he loves us. The fact that he chooses to love us and allow us to glorify and please him is absolutely amazing. God did not have to do any of this. He does not have to sustain our life another moment from now. But he is. He chooses to do this because of one of the most important attributes of his, and that is his wonderful love. Which brings us to our last attribute in Bradley, who will talk about wonderful love. What on earth do you guys mean when you say that? That is something that baffles me and still baffles me even after studying this. It's uh, Love is a really interesting uh, attribute of God. So let's try to define what love is. Let's look at uh, what the world thinks uh, through merriamwebster.com. A couple definitions. Love is a strong affection for another arising out of kinship or personal personalities. It's an attraction based on sexual desire affection and tenderness felt by lovers, affection based on admiration, benevolence, or common interests, to feel a lover's passion, devotion, or tenderness. Let's go on and see what uh, Wikipedia says about love. Love represents a range of emotions and experiences related to the senses of affection and sexual attraction. This is not what love is. This is not what God said love is. This is a way off point that uh, he has. And we'll get into that a little bit later. So let's kind of get into the Christian realm a little bit and see how they define love. J.I. Packer says, Love is an exercise of his goodness towards individual sinners, whereby having identified himself with their welfare, he has given his son to be their savior and now brings them to know and enjoy him in a covenant relationship. That's an awesome thing. It really is. But when you get down to it, that's still not describing wholly what love is. 
simple definitions just fall short of what uh, how to how to describe God. So let's kind of get into the Greek a little bit and see what we can come up with. And Hebrew, by the way. Uh, the first Greek word is phileo. It's actually a general term, uh, meaning that you are showing love or affection or hospitality, just kind of a general term for love. Another is eros, and this is actually uh, romantic love. This is what our culture and our world thinks love is, and th- this is not it. And this is a lot of what marriage is based on, and uh, that is, that's wrong. It's not just the sexual attraction there. Uh, Gary Thomas from The Sacred Marriage has a good quote. It goes, uh, if this sounds like a radically different view of marriage, it's important to remember that the very concept of romantic love, which is so celebrated in movies, songs, and cheap paperbacks, was virtually unknown to the ancients. There were exceptions. One need merely read the Song of Songs, for instance, but taken as a whole, the concept that marriage should involve passion, fulfillment, and excitement is a relatively recent development on the scale of human history. This is not uh, what love is. This is what we, our culture, have made love to be. Another term, uh, this is a Hebrew term, ahab, uh, means mostly to describe relationships. I actually probably just butchered that word, and I'm thankful Theron is not here this morning. So, uh, but it's mostly to describe relationships such as marital, a parent or child, or deep friendships such as David had with Jonathan. Another word is hesed, which denotes kindness, love, loyalty, mercy, and steadfastness. This next term, it's a Greek term. Uh, I'm probably going to butcher this too, Matthew, forgive me. But it's uh, agapao. Yes, that's close. But this is actually denoting a biblical understanding of love, which is what we're trying to do here this morning. Which gets me on into the last term, which I'm sure all of you have probably heard this, agape. This love signifies the deep, sacrificial, true, pure love of God. And basically means God is love. He is love itself. And if you read 1 John 4.16, that verse says, really short, God is love. He is love. And the word there, of course, is agape. So this kind of shows that God defines love. Love does not define God. He defines love. And this is true of every good quality he has. For instance, take power, for example. God is power. And power does not define God because he is power itself. That's a little confusing, but uh, bear with me there. So when we read that God is love, we are reading a description of God, not a definition. And I think that's very important to remember that love is not a definition. It is a description of God. And so we need to know what some of those descriptions are. So let's get into that a little bit. First, God's love is Unoriginated. Matthew just kind of hit on that uh, with his point and showed us that God was not created. And so since God is not created and God is love, love itself was unoriginated. It was always there. It was there before time, in eternity past, and will be in eternity future, just like Matthew said, which leads into 
love, God's love, is eternal. A good verse for that is Psalms 136, 1 through 2, which says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his loving kindness is everlasting. It is age abiding, it is unending, it is in time and outside of time. Another point is that God's love is immeasurable, infinite, and my favorite in this study, it is binding. Uh, Romans 8 does a great example in showing this. Um, Verses 38 and 39 say, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Paul cannot find anything to separate us from God's love. That is a binding love as believers. It is a contract that will never be able to be broken. That is an awesome thing. But this kind of denotes a kind of a scary thing for unbelievers, in my opinion, just for the fact that this love, um, uh, unbelievers, you know, well, (laughs) how to put it this way, um, hell is defined as eternal separation of God. That's where uh, unbelievers will go. And that is a sad thing to think about, to be eternally separated uh, from God's love. That should motivate us to go out, motivate us to love people, to continue uh, to evangelize and to preach God's word, to preach his love. Another point, God's love is a commitment manifested in giving. Very common verse, John 3.16. Pretty sure most of you know that. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Ephesians 5.25, Christ so loved the church that he gave himself for her. It is, he is a giving God in his love. That is amazing. Which leads to the next point, that God is personal. He is a personal God. He sent Christ for us. That is an awesome thing to think about. He wanted everybody to come to him. He loves us so much. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is a God of love. He wants us. He wants us to love him. He wants us to come to him. That is an awesome thing. Which leads to our next point, that God's love is causeless and unprovoked. Matthew just told us that... uh, God is self-sufficient, that he doesn't need us. And that's a, kind of a little disheartening there. But he gives us that love, even though he doesn't need it. What an amazing thing. He can, he can see nothing good in us to draw out his affections. But he loved us. That, that almost doesn't make sense, but it's an amazing thing. Just like how he loved Israel, how he chose Israel, Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8 says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to you, fathers. It is because he loved them. I mean, that oath was there, but it's because he loved them. He didn't choose them because of their power, their greatness, or any other thing. He chose them because he simply loved them. 
And that's how God reached down to us. He reached us because he loved us, even though we don't deserve that at all. And there's many other attributes, like it's God's love is free, it is pure, it is true, and there's many others. One merely needs to read 1 Corinthians 13 to get another list, but this could go on and on and on and on trying to describe God's love. But God goes beyond just being love and actually shares his attribute with his creation, with us, with man. His omniscience does not cancel out his love. Remember, he is uncreated. Um, so what are some of the reasons why we share this attribute with God? And isn't that kind of a crazy thing? That God is love, but he shares this with us. That's kind of a cool thing. What, what are some reasons for that? Man is made in the image of God. We share some of his attributes, just like a child, how they share attributes with their mother and father. We share this attribute with God and many others. Another reason, we just simply desire love itself. Man desires it. We want affection. We want love. Even though our idea of love may be tainted and wrong, we desire that. But most importantly, the Bible tells us we can love. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Well, maybe that just means husbands, only husbands can love and girls can't. Uh, that's heretical, so don't believe that. Uh, but no, the Bible tells us we can love. That's a cool thing. So why should we? Because we are commanded to love. Matthew 22:34 through 40 says, But when the Pharisees heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they gathered themselves together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. God wants us to love before anything else. That has to be a foundation. He commands us to do that first. Romans 13, 8-10 also says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in saying, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is a fulfillment of the law. We are commanded to love. Another thing, it is the most important attribute to abide by. 1 Corinthians 13, 1-3 says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If, uh, if I give all I have away, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love must be there. It is the most important attribute to abide by. We have to have love. We must realize that an attitude in love is required for godly living. We have to love to have a godly life. 
The love of God toward us is the cause, the basis, and the standard for the love we are expected to demonstrate in our lives as Christians. We, we must love. So, how do we love? That's a pretty uh, full question there, but I'll try to give you a couple reasons here. John gives us two very practical ways to demonstrate God's love. In 1 John 3, 16 through 17, he, it says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Now, that passage is speaking to believers. But especially in the second part, I think that needs to go beyond that. Absolutely has to go beyond that. That we must reach out to the world. We must love the world. Just like we're supposed to, our next point, love our neighbors. Matthew 22 through 39 says, again, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now what defines neighbor? Well, is it just the person next to you? Is it the person next to you in your dorm room? Is it your neighbor or the person in your apartment complex? No. Another way that neighbor could be defined is friend. It is everyone who we come in contact with. It is absolutely everybody. It's a, love can't be selective in this. Love should compel us to obedience and worship, allowing no rival to share the throne with God. Exodus 23 says, You shall have no other gods before me. God must be first because we become what we love. If we are going to love the world first, put the world first before, we, before God, we're going to become like the world. If we love knowledge first, we're going to love knowledge first instead of God. We must love God first before anything else. Here's a really neat one I think that applies a lot to our church. Love facilitates and contributes to Christian unity. 1 John 4, 20-21 If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. We must have love to have unity in this body. We must love each other. I know there's some people that have struggled with uh, loving other people in our body, but we have to love them nonetheless because if we don't, our fellowship, everything is going to break down. We must have love in this body. And speaking of brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, love can actually be a discipline because sometimes, you know, I screw up, you screw up, we all screw up, and we have to be disciplined sometimes. But that's a form of love. Proverbs 3.12 says, For the Lord reproves him who he loves, as a father, the son, in whom he delights. God loves you. God wants you to become more like him, so God disciplines you. Another thing, love is a key defense against Satan. 1 Thessalonians 5.8 says that it's the breastplate of faith and love. The breastplate covers the most vital parts of your body. It is a foundation. It is a uh, we have to have love. Otherwise, practically everything else is useless because you'd just be walking out into a battle and you'd be like, hey, just shoot me in the chest and I'm gone. So <laughs> it is a key defense against Satan to keep him away. We must 
love to keep him away. Otherwise, he'll be able to get into our body really easily. Uh, church body. <laughs> Another point, loving shows and proves that we are of God. First John 4, 7 through 10 and 20 through 21 again. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins, the substitution for our sins. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, the one who loves God should love his brother also. Loving shows that we are of Christ. Even though if we don't love, that doesn't mean we aren't saved, but love is a proof that we are. And I kind of wanted to extend this out to you guys and see what you thought, like two or three points. You know, what are some other ways that we can love in our body, love the world or love each other? I was just wondering if you guys had any thoughts on that real quick. Jason. Praying for each other. What's that? Praying for each other. Praying for each other, absolutely. Forgive each other. Forgive each other. That's a good one. A couple others. KT. Yeah. One of the Sunday schools is going to be studying a book called It's Not All. It's Not About You. I think if we understood that it's not about me, that that would produce a lot of love for each other. Absolutely. Being selfless. That's a huge thing. A couple more, anyone? Anyone? Gregory? Give of your time to others. Giving of our time. That's a big one. I, I struggle with that a lot. <laughs> Anybody else? Confronting each other with discipline. Yes. That's pretty rough. It's easy to get offended, but we have to realize we have to love. And in, when we are coming in love, we shouldn't get offended. One more. Anybody? Building on what KT was talking about, just practicing humility towards one another. And, you know, God demonstrated his love toward us through sending Christ. And Christ, you know, in the his... What he accomplished for us necessitated humility. And, you know, God, that goes back to the whole God being humble, how that makes sense. That accomplished uh, in the most amazing expression of love. Absolutely. And that's one another. Hum humility is a big thing. Well, to sum up, those are all great points. But to sum up, we must not forget that God is love. And that love is not something that is merely defined. It is a description of God. It is an ongoing, uh, I think, discovery of God. Uh, our God is love. And in understanding God's love, we come to understand how great and indescribable our God is. It is the love of Christ that controls us. For in being saved, we should be making the love of Christ Something that we are constantly driving towards. Amen.